0: Um, we are sitting with our wonderful guest, Lynn Boland. Would like to say hi?
1: Hi, great to be here. Thanks for
0: having me back. Thanks for being back, Lynn. All right, so we're going to be talking today about I'm going to try my best to do this again. Um <laughs> circle at a es-
2: circle at kare. No, yeah. oh, you yeah. got hey. it. ryn has hey. okay. got you. Okay. Good. Hopefully you <laughs> two know. years of French. <laughs>
0: this is what I get for taking Spanish.
2: It's okay. They're both romance <laughs> yeah. languages. So um, anyway, so tell us a little bit about the exhibition uh, Circle at Carre.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is an artistic group that was formed in Paris in 1928, lasted a couple years, had one exhibition in 1930. They were based in Paris, but it was really an international group. So this included artists from Eastern and Western Europe, Russia, North and South America. Uh, It included both emerging and very established artists. So they're there. And, you know, nearly a hundred years later, some of the artists who participated are very well known. Others you probably never heard of, but it's a pretty spectacular collection of abstraction happening in the period between the two world wars. Um, kind of all brought together in, in one place. So you can really see it all. Right on. So who are some of those more well-known artists? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Vasily Kandinsky was a member of the group, and he's included in the exhibition. We have a really wonderful painting by Kandinsky. Um, some of the other members included former Cubist artist Fernand Leger, uh, Le Corbusier, people like Alexandra Ekster, um Oh, you know, the list goes on and on. All the people I've just named are in the exhibition. There were some others that aren't included in this show, people like Pete Mondrian, Kurt Schwitters, um, some folks like that. But this exhibition has some artists who weren't part of this group but were kind of part of the scene at the time. So Sonia Delaunay is included in the exhibition at our museum. She wasn't a member of the group, but she was very supportive of them, and she she visited the show. She knew the members. um, So... Yeah, those are some of the bigger names, but, you know, I could go on. So uh, we've got a a lot of questions here, and I'm going
0: to start with um, this one before I – because I have a lot of things I'm interested in about this. But for those who are listening who may not be super familiar with the term, how
1: do you define abstract art? You know, that's a great question because it gets defined in different ways, and that very question was kind of at the heart of a lot of debates – that were coming up during the formation of the group and even during their first exhibition. There was a fist fight during the opening <laughs> really? of the show. Yeah, people took this stuff really seriously because it wasn't just art, it wasn't just aesthetics. This was a way of communicating ideas that are gonna change the world. This was following World War One. They wanted to avoid that happening again. Now, okay. So they were unsuccessful. World War II <laughs> happened, right? Yeah. But they were trying. And that's what that's what all of this was about. It um, you know, they're not just um, you know, designs for a necktie. They're 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 works of art that are meant to be uh embedded with deep meaning that can really change people's lives. Um so this idea of abstract, um, at its you know, at kind of one end and the most um you know, extreme definition, it would be something that has no reference to anything in the visible world. So these are colors and shapes that are, you know, really formed in one's mind. Uh, It's not based on anything. It's not inspired by anything you see. But there was really a range of abstraction happening at the time and in this exhibition. So you have some work that You'll come to the show and you will see a figure or, um, you know, a, a, the front of a building, things like that. There are elements that are recognizable in some of the artist's work. So, you know, in a loose sense, it would still fall under the, the definition of abstract art. Um, some people will make a distinction. So abstracted versus totally abstract art. Uh, You know, at the time, the the term was used in different ways, and a lot of times they'd make a distinction. So, if it had no, you know, uh, no relationship to the visible world, sometimes it would be called non-objective art. So you'll hear that term bandied about some, but not subjective art, just (laughs) non-objective art, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's
2: pretty funny. How does the name, how does their name, Circle et Carre, uh, tie into abstract art and what does Circle et Carre mean?
1: Great question. So it's French for circle and square. Um, it you know here again they debated the name of the group for a long time and they they didn't settle on it in fact until one of the co-founders an artist by the name of pierre daura designed a logo for the group and everybody loved the logo so much they were willing to accept the name (laughs) Um, and for different people it meant different things so one of the co-founders this belgian poet critic Later, a visual artist named Michel Suffor said for him, the circle and the square was the embodiment kind of of all things and all binaries and all differences. So it was this idea of this kind of universal, these universal forms coming together, uh, reconciling all differences, really. For other people, it meant different things. When Kandinsky joined the group, he really liked the logo and he, he wrote to them that, you know, he really liked the name and the logo he said, for me, the circle is the most significant form. Didn't mention the square at all. Really didn't care about the square, but they had the circle. So it's like they, they got
0: circles I'm in.
1: Right. They made Kandinsky happy. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got, you know, kind of a Russian contingent of artists who were, uh, you know, very into the square. <laughs> like Kazimir Malievich and, and his famous The Black Square of 1913.
0: Sounds ominous. So, <laughs>
1: Yeah, I uh, I I was studying that painting in a museum, had to look at it for a few hours. I've never fielded so many questions of what in the world are you seeing there. <laughs>
2: so, I know a lot of artists uh, study circles and squares, and they almost relate circles as being feminine and squares as being masculine, with the angle angles and the um, curves. How do you feel
1: about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something actually in Sufor when he was talking about it. I think that made its, its way onto the list of the various things that this would embody for him. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I personally... Now, in 2020, try to avoid those kind of, you know, gendered forms (laughs) along with colors. But, yeah, there's something to that. And certainly 100 years ago, um, you know, I think there were associations there. Now, that's not to say that there weren't plenty of female artists painting very angular works or male artists painting very kind of soft, curvilinear forms. Um, You know, so it's not a hard and fast association. But, yeah, we, we see some of that for sure.
0: So, I'm curious about the nature of this exhibit. Is this exhibit a kind of a re exhibitation of these, of this, uh, I'm just going to say circle and square. Yeah, that's, of, that's, of the circle and square group. Fair. Or is it on, on more of an ex- exploration and investigation into them as a historical piece?
1: Oh, that's a great question. It's kind of both. And it started out as one and then became both rather than just the one. So, you know, a little quick backstory. I uh, I was working on my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin and um, saw the job posting for Curator of European Art at the Georgia Museum of Art at University of Georgia. That's where I did my undergrad. Uh, so it piqued my interest, but it was also right up my alley in terms of what they were looking for in this curator. They wanted somebody to organize this exhibition, actually, on the Circle and Square group. Uh, and so I... I took the job and uh, moved back to Athens, Georgia, and they wanted me to recreate this exhibition from 1930. Well, I didn't know any better, I said, sure. So, you know, I um, was spending years, I worked on this show for four years, um, hunting down paintings all over the world, working off a checklist, the titles of which were mostly the words abstract and or composition which doesn't give you a whole lot to hang your hat in on. In the
0: whole world of abstract art. Yeah. Right, yeah,
1: find that one. Had some grainy black and white photos. So after a lot of research, I, I had hunted these things down, and they were scattered to the winds. Obviously, a lot of them were in Europe, but some were in, you know, there were some in Johannesburg and Montevideo and Tel Aviv. They were all over the place. Oh. The, the shipping cost for it, well, we got the quote, when I picked my jaw up off the floor, I realized that that $750,000 shipping quote was one Ooh. way. We'd still have to get them back. Oh. Uh, so, you know, that would have been the recreation of the 1930 show. But I don't know that there's a museum in the world that could afford that. Do that. So we went a different <laughs> yeah. route. They We had kind of a core of these works in European museums, we still borrowed those, but the museum at Georgia started to put together a collection of works on paper by a lot of the lesser known artists who were members of the group. Already in the collection of that museum was a Kandinsky, a Fabulous Leger, um, some of the other kind of big names were already represented, but it was the the lesser known artists that needed to fill it out. So. Uh, long story short, there was a pretty aggressive acquisition campaign, had to do some fundraising, had to had to research each and every work to make sure, A, that it was what it purported to be. But also, this is during a time, uh, especially in Europe, where you have to be concerned uh, to make sure things weren't essentially stolen by the Nazis. So you have to research the provenance to make sure that it hadn't been seized by the Nazis and then sold to somebody else later. Uh, so we ended up assembling the collection that is now at the Gregory Alacar Museum of Art and the University Center for the Arts. Um, nearly 60 works by these artists. Wow. Now, the downside was that you know we weren't able to purchase that work that was in the 1930 exhibition. Um, You know, so they are alternates. But what that offered then was really a broader picture of abstraction in the 20s and 30s because there are works that are before the group was formed, works after the group was formed. So you really get this range. You know, they were all about creating this universal language, this international spirit of art. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, At the same time, there are... You know, pretty profound differences between the styles of these artists and oftentimes based on what group they were a part of or what country they were from. So this exhibition really is a chance in a a nutshell to get this great overview that you would probably have to travel to, you know, major museums throughout the world to see all of these artists.
0: And kind of compare them and see, you know, how, I mean, they all work together in this group and see, yeah. You say you have stuff from before and after, too, and you can. Yeah you know i did you think that uh this is, a, this is a question do you think that the uh the group circle and square actually changed their them stylistically
1: yeah absolutely in fact you could see it in the show in one work in particular there are others but one really comes to the fore for me so there was an artist named marcel Kahn. now she had studied with this uh, group of kind of cubist artists uh, known then as purists Fernand Leger was one of her teachers. Amadé Ozenfant was another one. So she was coming out of this cubist style. Um, Then she participated in Circle and Square. Now, Circle Carré had members of all of the major artistic movements in Europe. So she was exposed to Dutch de style. I think Piet Mondrian. She was exposed to Dada and this use of found inexpensive materials trash off the street. Um, and you almost immediately see it reflected in her work where it becomes, mm, the compositions start to look much more like what the Dutch, De style artists were doing, but she's assembling it from kind of found pieces of cardboard, like the Dada artists. So yeah, they were definitely learning from one another, especially the younger artists, you know, the, 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 the older guys were pretty much set in their ways, but, um, you know one of the great things about the group was that it included multiple generations also for its time it included a lot more women than were in any other artistic group in europe at the time maybe short of dada 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 was pretty equitable but compare it for instance to surrealism and they they were opposed to surrealism they were formed in part to oppose surrealism surrealism almost all guys um, Circle and square, okay, not 50-50, but for its time, they were doing pretty well. I think it's about 25% female artists. Right on. Yeah.
2: And could you describe uh, what surrealism is in a little more depth?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, surrealism, you know, the classic image that I think comes to most of our minds is some melting watches by Salvador Dali. And that's very true, you know, that's a painting from from the 30s. Best known in the United States, though. So what they were seeing in Europe was really a wider variety. It included that kind of very naturalistic painting of somebody like Salvador Dali, but it also included total abstractions by people like Andre Masson. Um, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of money, Masson, so he... He didn't have much food, so he'd, he'd be laying in his bed, staring at his ceiling, hallucinating, and that's where a lot of his imagery would come from. So that kind of points to an important difference, and one of the reasons why the Circle and Square Group didn't like the Surrealists is that Circle and Square was all about this internationalism and creating this international language of abstraction that was very universal. The Surrealists were were looking inward; they were they were trying to draw on their subconscious. So it was a very kind of subjective approach, which for the abstractionists, the geometric abstractionists was just far too individualistic. It was kind of beside the point of what they were trying to do. Yeah, it really was. That and, you know, one of the co-founders of this group, Joaquin Torres Garcia, Uruguayan artist, um, he was a staunch Catholic and he really hated Dali's imagery. Dali kind of made a splash in 1928, right when this group was formed. And, uh, you know, he had some pretty shocking paintings. We think of the meltdowns. Watches, but um you know, Google Salvador Dali 1928, and you'll see some things that I would need words I can't use on the radio to describe. Oh, I've got so. a
0: crazy Dali poster in my room. All
1: right, maybe you know what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> maybe a little.
2: So, something I thought was interesting that you touched on a little bit before was the International Spirit of uh Art. Mm-hmm. So, what is that exactly?
1: Because it's in the title of your exhibit, right? Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Well, you know, for these artists, it was it was their goal, really. Um, Um, You know, this was all on the heels of World War One, and all of these artists had in one way or another, uh, you know, either fought in the war or were witness to the destruction and devastation that had happened. So, you know, everybody was really looking for a way to avoid that sort of thing. But there were a lot of different approaches to that. So for the abstractionists. It really was about creating this language that was independent of a kind of national style. So, in the history of art, you know, you could point to the Italian Renaissance style or maybe the Italian Baroque and differentiate it from the French Baroque style, both happening at the same time, having some similarities, but some, you know, important differences that you could recognize in your eye. They were trying to break away from that, they were trying to cross national boundaries with their artistic style and now, they say if it ain't baroque don't fix it <laughs> i couldn't help myself
2: <laughs> that was a good one well you know what artists
1: <laughs> called their art in the 17th century it wasn't baroque. Baroque means misshapen pearl and was a derogatory term applied later you that's know right. what an artist working in the 17th century called their art what do they call it modern
0: oh yeah was like, oh they, they called it yeah, that's modern <laughs> yeah. maybe modern. with an e
1: on it right if they were in modern italy day. but no it was modern modern is a term St- duck. In the in the twentieth century, in the early twentieth century, it was all about making it new, and so everything was about being modern, and that became so important that that term stuck around. And it's now like, it's stuck like the
0: term it. like new wave music, right? for really old music. Right. Well, hey, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. You're, you're okay, maybe you. I didn't I didn't mean it like
0: that. <laughs> no, no, it's been a while. <laughs> all right, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping it up here, but uh, first we're gonna. Two final questions. First final question. So how was the original
1: Circle and Square received? Oh, it, it was horribly received, actually. <laughs> no, you know, so the artists in Paris loved it. They had a lot of support from their fellow artists, um, you know, of all styles, really. And a lot of people visited the show. Pablo Picasso came every day. Oh, he lived in an apartment above the gallery, so he had to walk through it on his way out. But you know, <laughs> he, he was there every day. It's the he, thought that counts. He, he stopped and looked. He was appreciative. Um, <laughs> now I forgot where I was going with that. Thinking uh, about Pablo Picasso, I mean, he's yeah, interesting right, life. Yeah, yeah. He, he totally threw me off. Um, no, seriously, where was I going with that? What was um, it was
0: received. It wasn't received. Oh so well. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the critics trashed it because they were kind of stuck between. You know, to a rock and a hard place. So for the general public, they, you know, the general public still hadn't fully accepted abstraction as a valid means of expression in 1930. So for anybody who was kind of conservative, they were still way too far out. But for the kind of avant-garde art press... Well, this is stuff that had been going on for more than a decade. So it was seen as kind of old hat and, you know, a little tired. So they were getting it on both ends there. They were criticized by the critics for being alternatively too cutting edge or too conservative. And then, you know, their one exhibition was in April of 1930. Well, in October of 1929 stock market crashed everybody went broke it spread throughout the world it wasn't a great time to sell art so as it's reported not a single work sold in their exhibition wow (laughs) but you know the beauty is that well and so the artists didn't want anything they wouldn't even include it in their resume Uh, for decades but about 1950 it starts to show back up and artists and scholars started to realize, hey, wait a minute, this thing mattered. This thing made a difference. This group, although short-lived, led to all these other things. And then it started to matter again. So it kind of came back. But at the time, in 1930, uh, by everybody but the artists, it was really poorly received.
2: Well, that goes, right in hand with our last question about how it's been received at your museum
1: oh it's been great (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) so i don't know you know we've gotten a little bit of press the press has been far kinder now 90 years later uh some of our art professors have been in and are excited to be bringing their classes so now it's been a great reaction so far It's, it's been terrific to have it in the museum right on and can people come visit absolutely we are open tuesday through saturday 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're open late Thursday nights, so we're open until 7:30. So, you know, wait until the the segment's over uh, or the show, right? Yeah, <laughs> and then you know, head on down to the UCA, look for the giant soup can out front. Perfect.
2: Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, Circle at Carre or the exhibition and is-
1: Well, we've got some great programs around it. So a week from tomorrow, we've got the public reception. So food and and uh, you know a chance to celebrate the show. What kind of food? Uh, you know, <laughs> we're still figuring that out, but it's gonna be tasty. We're gonna up our game for this one. Let so we're, we're talking to some we're talking to some places. Uh, and we're we're locking that one in as as we speak, I think. Um bunch of programs, but the standout, the one I have to make sure everybody knows about is Wednesday, March 25th. A scholar and performer and composer and conductor named Luciano Quesa. Uh, is going to come, he's going to talk to us about Italian futurism, but better yet, he's going to perform some of the Italian futurist poetry. This is something he's done at the Guggenheim. He's done it around the world. Um, and he's going to play one of Luigi Russolo's noisemaker instruments and some other stuff. There's some surprises in store, but I, I can't say enough Can't spoil good it, things. Yeah. He's the most entertaining Person, I think I've ever seen do anything. I mean, nice. just end stop, full stop, right there. Oh, well, that's a that's a stunning endorsement I've ever heard. Yeah, of I'm one.
2: like that's a high bar. All right,
0: <laughs> Lynn Boland, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, guys.